Okay, so we're going to now move on to uh, our first uh, presentation, which is from my co-chair, um, Dr. Jeffrey Lennox, who uh, has been working in the AIDS field really since uh, he started his training. Um, he went from uh, uh, the Army in Walter Reed uh, to Emory, where he's led uh, initially led the uh, the uh, uh, program at Ponce and uh, has uh, moved to uh, uh, to Grady and doing great things with the Division of Infectious Diseases there. Um, uh, we will, uh, I think we'll segue over to him. I'll stop sharing my screen and uh, let Jeff uh, take over. All right. I'm getting my screen up. So thank you, Mike. And uh, one thing you'll see from the title of my screen when it does come up is that this has a slightly different format than what the, was put in the agenda because uh, we decided since the virtual AIDS meeting took place last week that we wanted to highlight some of the breaking studies and research from that meeting rather than focusing simply on investigational antiretroviral therapy. Uh, and again, uh, I am here at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I work in one of those Ryan White funded clinics that Laura has mentioned, and we really appreciate all the support and mentorship from her over the decades. My financial relationships, I do have research grants and serve on one scientific advisory board intermittently. Uh, these are the learning objectives. Uh, obviously, uh, talk, I want to talk about the long-term remission case that was presented. Uh, advise, you know, make sure that people are able to advise the patients that they're taking care of about the latest data about weight gain and ART. And then uh, one of the other highlights was some additional data from uh, the study in Botswana looking at women who are receiving dolutegravir uh, and many other things that I'm going to cover. So as I mentioned a minute ago, the first thing was the slash cure remission case. And um, I'm sorry, in, in the cure remission field, excuse me. Uh, one interesting study that was presented from the INA, or NIH was a study where people prior to their death, obviously, had given their permission to have their body autopsied to look at multiple tissues to help determine how widespread is the viral reservoir. Is it mostly localized to the GI tract, lymphatic tissue, brain, uh, or other tissues? And also to make sure that these were patients who, in general, uh, at least half of them had an undetectable blood viral load by the ultra-sensitive assay. So they were able to get uh, permission from eight patients who were undetectable by the ultra-sensitive assay and five patients who were on ART but who were detectable by the ultra-sensitive assay uh, with an average viral load um, less than 2,000 copies with a range of 15 to 3550 viral load. And they looked at multiple tissues. They looked for HIV DNA, so uh, provirus, and also RNA, which indicates that there's some viral replication ongoing. And in the slide, I know it's difficult to read, but across on the, on the left-hand side are the five donors with detectable uh, low-level viremia, and on the right-hand side were the donors that had undetectable viremia. And what you can see in general, looking at integrated provirus, there really were no differences. 
And they were able to find integrated virus in multiple tissues, which doesn't come as too much of a surprise. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is when they looked at the HIV RNA that was detectable and being produced, again, there was really no difference between those who had low-level viremia and those who were completely suppressed. And again, they were able to detect viral RNA in multiple tissues, uh, including such things as brain, other organs like lung and kidney and pancreas, uh, showing that there is reservoir virus present in many tissues throughout the human body. Now, they went on to sequence the provirus, and what they found, again, which is consistent with other studies that have been done, is that the vast majority of the provirus is defective, but they found roughly about 5% that appeared to be replication competent, and that's probably serving as the reservoir for the RNA that they were detecting. So the um, this study supports previous studies and also indicates that there's no one single viral reservoir uh, and that for cure and remission strategies, the question is how much of the reservoir do you need to eliminate in all these major tissue sites to give a long-lasting cure? Now, another group also addressed um, proviral integration sites, and hopefully people are aware that there's been studies showing that in some patients there's clonal proliferation of infected cells where all of the cells are basically carbon copies of each other and they all have the same um, integration sites for the virus. So the question in this study was, in patients who are suppressed on ART, what proportion of the integrated uh, provirus is due to this clonal proliferation and what is due to other cells. So they um, took 50 patients and they did a very intensive study at looking at all the various integration sites. And between the 50 patients, they found over 38,000 unique integration sites with the highest being 8,000 per person. So in other words, in that person's cells, the virus had integrated at 8,000 different sites in the cells of the patient, which is actually fairly incredible. Now, it wasn't that this was all random. They did find that the virus preferred to integrate within genes that were skewed towards cell cycling and inflammation. Um, and so therefore, there was some tendency to uh, integrate in those areas of the chromosome that have those types of control functions. Now, again, they looked at integration of integrated virus to see if it was replication competent, and the majority of it was not. Again, very consistent findings with other studies. Now, interestingly, about half of their participants, or little less, had clonal proliferation that was detected. And even in those with clonal proliferation, many other cells that were infected with uh, provirus were also detected. And in some cases, there was a large number of cells that were individually infected at multiple different unique integration sites. So I think although clonal proliferation obviously plays an important role in some subjects, even in those subjects, they have integrated virus that isn't clonal and that also has to be considered when you're thinking about a cure strategy. Now, another group 
was interested in the question about what happens when we start decreasing the number of antiretrovirals that patients receive. As, you know, people are aware, I'm sure, that there's been studies looking at success and even the licensed uh, combination uh, that's based on that you don't need three drugs once you're completely suppressed and three might be more toxic than two. And so they were interested in looking at um, not just virologic success, but does two drugs suppress inflammation as well as three drugs? And obviously, three drugs doesn't lead to complete loss of the inflammatory cascade in HIV-infected patients, but it does decrease it. So they decided to look at subjects in a large cohort study and see what happened when they switch from three drugs to two drugs. And so as you can see here, they enrolled uh, from a, or enrolled, but they looked at um, previously collected blood samples from a large cohort of patients, 8,415, who were suppressed on antiretroviral therapy and didn't have any other health conditions that would lead them to be in a significant inflammatory state. So of that cohort, 7,665 remained on their three-drug arm. A little over 400 changed to two drugs, and a little over 300 changed to one drug. They then measured inflammatory markers that included D-dimers, CRP, interleukin-6, and intestinal fatty acid-binding protein, IFBAP. They also looked at endpoints like um, death, stroke, heart attack, other end organ disease. So the, the results of the study were that there was no difference over the course of the study from switching from three to two or one drug uh, in any of those hard endpoints. And that's not too surprising. Um, but they then looked at the biomarkers from representative patients from each of those cohorts. And you can see in the figure on the right that there was a shift towards a more elevated D-dimer and C-reactive protein in the three-drug group versus the two-drug group, indicating that perhaps decreasing from three drugs to two drugs might be associated with a slightly higher inflammatory uh, milieu in the patient compared to maintaining the three-drug regimen. Now, they weren't able to make any conclusion on the three drugs versus one drug or two drugs versus one drug, uh, but I think that's not really significant since mostly one drug therapy has been recognized to not uh, be sufficient to suppress viral load and prevent uh, resistance. So again, the interesting finding from this study is that we probably need to get more uh, cytokine data from other groups of patients on two drugs to see if this is a true finding, which might indicate an increased risk over the long term uh, for uh, inflammatory and organ disease manifestations. Now, one of the biggest items from the conference last week was another patient who is in a long-term remission and could potentially be cured from their HIV. So this was from a study where the investigator wanted to intensify treatment in patients who are completely suppressed by adding dolutegravir, maraviroc, and nicotinamide. 
Now, the reason nicotinamide was chosen, and I'm sure people are familiar with nicotinamide, which is a form of vitamin B3, is that, um, as you can see in the figure, uh, nicotinamide uh, does have some activity to inhibit uh, histone deacetylase, and it also inhibits a methyl transferase. And those two activities would tend to reverse viral latency, to unmask the virus. Now, nicotinamide also is known to deacetylate TAT, which obviously is an important uh, viral protein that when it binds to TAR, increases HIV transcription. And then Maravroc, through its activity, would also tend uh, in this patient population to uh, potentially induce viral transcription. Uh, through one of its secondary mechanisms. So what this person did is they had a cohort of patients that were fully suppressed, and they added dolutegavir, maravaroc, and nicotinamide. And for this one patient from the cohort, this figure shows what happened to their viral load. And what you can see at about a little over six months into treatment there was a spike in the viral load uh, to a very low-level detectability. And so the postulate was that this combination treatment had induced a small amount of viral replication. The patient was then switched back to their uh, standard antiretroviral therapy and followed for a period of time before an analytical treatment interruption. And so over the course of 60 weeks, Following the analytical treatment interruption, there was no relapse in viremia, obviously, which is unusual. They then went and uh, measured viral RNA and integrated DNA in blood, could not detect any, and then did large volume co-culture to see if they could induce viral replication, and they could not. The other interesting thing is that the HIV serology, at least the uh, enzyme immunosorbent assay, reverted to negative indicating that the patient may not be stimulating B cells to produce antibody because the cells are not being exposed to any uh, cells that have been activated by HIV antigens. Uh, however, the Western blot remained weakly positive, so it wasn't a complete seroreversion. Uh, and it's possible that this patient, through this combination, may be in a long-term remission. Uh, However, none of the other study subjects in the study had this same pattern. So it, it's possible that this is unique to this one subject and has nothing to do with the intervention. Uh, and, you know, further time will tell. Now, as far as new antiretrovirals, I didn't put in a slide about fostemzivir because it was approved recently. Uh, it's going to be very expensive to use, uh, but it is a, a brand new category of antiretroviral therapy. Now, also coming down the pike as far as new categories of therapy is islatrovir. This is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor that's also a translocation inhibitor. So it works uh, from a sort of a slightly different mechanism than your classic NRTIs. In this study, they uh, did a phase 1B study of three different doses of islatrovir plus duravirine and 3TC versus duravirine, 3TC, and tenofovir. 
And then what they did is they stopped the 3TC at 24 weeks. So after that point, it was a two-drug combination of the Slatrovir and Duravirine. At 48 weeks, Barolid uh, were very similar. There were only eight subjects who met the definition of viral failure. And in those subjects, the viral load was too low to detect any resistant virus. So in all four arms, there was uh, equivalent virologic suppression. The adverse effects were very similar, although headaches were more common in the aslactrovir arm. And then the graph shows you the viral success, virologic failure, et cetera, for the three different doses of the aslactrovir. Um, the one caveat with this study is that this uh, had a small sample size since it was a phase 1B study, only 30 subjects per arm. And so it's possible that the two-drug combination may not be as effective as is shown in this study. Uh, and then obviously we'll need larger sample sizes of patients to see uh, what the um, adverse effects of this latrivir are. Now, turning to antiretroviral complications, uh, at the virtual CROI last year, there was a lot of interest on uh, studies looking at the effect of various antiretroviral treatments on weight gain uh, in subjects who are treated. So the advanced study is an antiretroviral naive study that, in effect, was comparing TAF to TDF and dolutegravir to efavirenz. So the arms were that everybody got FTC, and then the uh, companion drugs was either TDF efavirenz, TDF dolutegravir, or TAF dolutegravir. And this was a, a reasonably powered study with 350 patients per arm. If you look at virologic suppression, they were equivalent between the three arms, which, again, is consistent with previous studies. And there was more RTI resistance in the Favrin's arm, again, can, uh, equivalent to previous studies. As expected, the two TDF arms had less osteopenia than the TAF-containing arm. Um, and I just see now on the slide that that is reversed. It should be a different percentage. But you get the drift. So the interesting part of the study was looking at changes in body composition. On the left side of the uh, graph, you can see women, and on the right side, you can say men. And the lower pinkish colors are lean fat or lean tissue, and the upper two colors are fat. And what you can see on the far left for both men and women is that TAF, FTC, dolutegravir had the most mass gain. In women, it was more fat, and in men, it was still a majority fat, but less fat than women. TDF, FTC, dolutegravir, again, had more fat and lean tissue gain than TDF, FTC, or FTC and efavirenz, uh, but again, much less uh, on the order of about two kilograms less on average than those combinations that had TAF. So this study which was a prospective randomized study, again showed a trend towards patients who are on TAF and dolutegravir to gain more non-healthy fat than patients that are on TDF and dolutegravir. 
<coughs> and then patients who are on TDF and efavirenz gaining the least un, uh, unhealthy fat. <coughs> Excuse me. So then the obvious question, and that many of us are trying to address in, you know, studies or in our practice, is what happens in patients who are suppressed on a TAF regimen if you stop TAF? <coughs> so a randomized study was the TANGO study, which used a three-drug regimen with TAF. Uh, patients were randomized one-to-one to continue or to change to dolutegavir 3TC. So there's basically about 343 patients in either arm where they maintained their current regimen with TAF or changed to dolutegavir 3TC. They then adjusted the analysis to look at various predictors uh, for weight gain. And when you look at the adjusted uh, weight parameters, looking at duration of TAF in the table prior TAF duration less than a year or greater than a year, what you can see is that uh, in both arms, there was really no significant difference. And it didn't matter greatly um, um, when you looked at the duration of previous TAF. And when you looked at people who had an increase in baseline of greater than 10%, again, there was no significant difference. So over the course of this 48-week study, changing uh, from a TAF-based to a TAF-free regimen had no effect on weight loss by 48 weeks uh, in people who ad- admittedly were still on dolutegavir uh, and 3TC but weren't on TAF. So this uh, trial would indicate that switching from TAF uh, is not sufficient to lead to significant weight loss in those who have gained weight, uh, and there may need to be a more dramatic uh change in their regimen. Now, uh, another way to look at this is to look at people who change TDF to TAF and then maintain their third drug or change the third drug to an uh, integrase inhibitor. So this was from the OPERA cohort in the United States, and they looked at almost 7,000 people uh, who changed TDF to TAF and then either maintained the third drug or changed to an integrase inhibitor. Uh, when you look at the individual types of third drugs like non-nuke, PI, integrase inhibitor, there really was no difference between those uh, populations that were analyzed. So what I'm showing you here is people who switched from a non-integrase inhibitor regimen to an integrase regimen. And this is very similar to just the general slide that was also presented. And this is a representative approximation of a model patient. And in this study, the majority of the weight gain curve was in the first six to 12 months after switching TDF to TAF. And whether people stayed on their non-nuke PI or integrase they had a similar effect. So there wasn't a much more rapid increase in weight if you switch to TAF plus an integrase inhibitor versus just switching to TAF alone. So again, in this uh, study, there seemed to be a trend towards 
calf being associated with uh, increase in weight gain, uh, or potentially the obverse would be that TDF might uh, suppress weight gain. Another study um, that had been presented at Croy, but they gave uh, additional follow-up and additional data was looking at Draverine 3C, 3TC tenofovir. So in this study, patients were on a PI, an NNRTI, or an integrase-based regimen, and they were changed to Draverine 3TC tenofovir. So for instance, somebody could have been on TAF, FTC, and an integrase inhibitor, and they changed the TAF to TDF and the integrase inhibitor to Draverine, and that would make up uh, a a significant proportion of the subjects. So they did a post hoc analysis of weight trends in these people that switched off of a PI and NNRTI or an integrase inhibitor to this regimen. And you can see in the figure, there was an immediate switch group and a delayed switch group at six months after continuing the current treatment. And you can see that the results between the immediate and the delayed switch were very, very similar, that there continued to be small amounts of weight gained after the switch. And very few people, uh, when you look at the entire study, actually lost weight after stopping TAF and an integrase inhibitor specifically uh, and changing to TAF or to TDF and Draverine and 3TC. So again, another study showing that once you've gained the weight, at least by 48 weeks, which may not be long enough, but that's the data that we have, the patient shouldn't expect to see a significant weight loss by stopping the TAF and the uh, integrase inhibitor and switching to a non-integrase, non-TAF regimen. Now, this is also important in the developing world because of the rollout of what's called TLD, which is a TDF, uh, lamivudine, and dolutegravir, which clearly have major benefits as far as virologic suppression, ease of treatment, prevention of resistance. And so this is happening across many developing countries, uh, particularly those that are supported by PEPFAR, and they did a study looking at both adults and teens and looking at the effect on weight. And what you can see in the figure is looking at pre-switch and post-switch. And you can see that in general, uh, patients started to gain weight after switching to this regimen that included dolutegravir. Now, in adolescence, interestingly, there was a similar general trend but it, the greatest changes were those in, in those who we in the United States would consider underweight based on our growth curves and were considered thin in, the, in this setting. So the effect may not be as, good, as great on teens as it is on adults. Now, dolutegravir, obviously, there was a lot of news uh, over the last few weeks or years, excuse me, about the potential for neural tube uh, defects. And the Tsapamo study presented updated data of additional births that occurred since April 2019 and up through the end of April this month. So they were looking at a, a lot of additional uh, con uh, conceptions during that period. And you can see from the graph 
that over that period of time, there was again a progressive decrease in the risk of neural tube defects over that year of follow-up in Botswana. And so it got to a point at 0.2% that it is the same as most other antiretrovirals uh, that are used in Africa. And looking at the entire cohort, they concluded that there really wasn't any significant difference by April of 2020, but that if you looked at the total data available, that worst case scenario for every 1,000 treated women, that there would be one excess case of a neural tube defect. Uh, but again, by April of 2020, it was not significantly different. So it depends on if you're an optimist or a pessimist, but as an optimist, it does appear to me that the risk with dogatogavir is much lower. Now, other complications, uh, Depo-Provera is widely used uh, in women. And so the question was, since Depo-Provera decreases estrogen and increases bone resorption, whether it might have a enhancing effect on TDF. And so they studied women who either were or were not on TDF and were or were not on Depo-Provera, and then a cohort of HIV-negative women who were on neither. And what you can see is the green line shows HIV-negative women not on Depo-Provera or TDF. The um, red line uh, showing those that were just on Depo-Provera and then the bluish line showing the most bone loss um, in those that were on the combination. So it did appear that Depo-Provera uh, enhanced bone loss uh, associated with TDF-containing regimens. So that's something to take into account um, if you have a woman who uh, has osteopenia or risk factors for osteopenia and you want to start them on antiretroviral therapy, and they're already receiving Depo-Provera. What about other infections? Uh, there was an interesting risk factor analysis among a large cohort of MSM in Europe, and these were patients who had been cured for their hepatitis C by direct-acting agents, and they then uh, ice, they genotyped uh, the patient's virus when they relapsed, uh, and took out those who it was clearly a relapse and then looked at those who had acquired a new virus. And they looked at risk factors. And so what they found, and this has been reported uh, previously, some of these risk factors are supported from other studies, are sharing sex toys, receptive condomless anal intercourse, uh, low CD4 counts. These were all the strongest risk factors, but also significant on the adjusted analysis was group sex, anal rinsing, and uh, IDU uh, barely, uh, actually the it, confidence intervals crossed one. It wasn't highly significant, but I put it in there to show you, we always talk about IDU as a risk factor for HCV, but in this cohort, things we need to counsel people about are not sharing sex toys and having group sex, and uh, that would reduce their risk. Tuberculosis, this is still a major uh, problem in Africa. Uh, this study looked at the what's called the BPAL regimen of bedaquilin, pertominid, and linazolid in subjects who had either XDR or MDR-TB, 
and has been reported um, in now in major journals, a 90% cure rate of XDR and MDR TB with this regimen. Uh, the most interesting thing to me, and the reason I included it in here, is you can see in the second part of the graph that HIV status did not influence outcome. So as long as your patients were being treated with antiretrovirals and they got this new regimen, the BPAL regimen, they also had a 90% cure rate, which is outstanding news for countries that are uh, having a, a burden of drug-resistant TB. Now, the other thing that was very interesting is that we're all familiar with linazolid toxicity, and they had a high rate of linazolid toxicity in this study, but they were able to manage it by simply stopping the linazolid and then reinstituting it when the symptoms of the toxicity had resolved. And this included toxicities such as neuropathy and myelosuppression, that if you caught it early, stopped the treatment, that you could then reinstitute the treatment once the symptoms had resolved, at least in this setting. So that's all good news. Now, another study looking at tuberculosis, the Phoenix study, is trying to determine is the household the major place where people are acquiring MDR-TB? Uh, this doesn't directly answer that, but it's very interesting data showing in these communities how household exposures are very high risk. So they looked at people that they had data pre uh, the study on their TB status and uh, their um, blood IGRA or similar testing and then tested them again later in a year. And what they were able to show is that 21% of the family contacts that they were able to study acquired new TB infection, and almost 3% had active TB at the end of this brief period. And the risk was greatest in those that were less than five years of age, as has been shown over the last several decades that young children are the greatest risk. So this again shows that, you know, we need to have interventions that address the households in patients that are, uh, have the um, MDR-TB while the MDR-TB patients are getting treated. So that concludes my presentation of the high, what I consider to be the highlights of the virtual AIDS conference, and I'll turn it over to Mike for the question Great. and answer. Thanks so much, and I think it's um, a very nice review, very uh hard to pull that together so quickly. Um, thanks for doing that. And I think to the folks viewing, uh, if you look in the bottom part of your screen, you'll see a Q&A box. If some of you have already discovered this. Um, click on that, and then you can type in your questions, and we'll get to as many as we can um, as we move forward. We have about uh, 10 minutes here. So I'll, I'll kick off with the ones that we have so far. Um, question about the Serrano-Villar study. Uh, what was the duration of follow-up after switching? Um, the duration of follow-up, if I recall, was about a year, but I, I'd have to double-check that. Okay. Um, in the Tango study, uh, the question is, uh, don't quite understand why they would compare with switching to dolutegravir to see about weight loss. My understanding is that dolutegravir itself accounts for quite a bit of weight loss. A weight gain, sorry. Well, that is actually one of the debatable items is how much of the weight gain is due to dolutegravir and, or, you know, other integrases and how much is due to TAP or other factors. And so that's one reason why they wanted to look at that. 
Um, this question, um, wondering why, if any of the new ARVs might be appropriate for drug-resistant HIV-2 virus? Um, in general, HIV-2 is sensitive to known nucleosides and some of the integrase inhibitors. And there is some evidence that's emerging that uh, certain of the newer integrase inhibitors have activity. Uh, as far as the NNRTIs, they're intrinsically resistant to NNRTIs. So do you know anything more about that, Michael? No, I, I was wondering also about the capsid inhibitor. Oh, I see. Yeah, the capsid inhibitor. and, and Capavir. Uh, um, and I don't know the answer. It seems to me it should because of its mechanism, but I don't know. We'll try to find out. Yeah, it should. Yeah. So if a patient is on stable, sort of an old-fashioned regimen, and there is uncertainty about TAF, it seems reasonable to continue the current regimen while these uncertainties are worked out. Do you agree with that statement? As long as the patient's stable and they have no other toxicity, um, the question is, you know, what is their bone health, right? Do you need to do any interventions for their bone? Um, if they've been on it a long time, if there was going to be toxicity from TDF, it's probably already occurred. So switching to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense, although there is some data from switch studies showing a small increase in bone mineral density. What would you do, Michael? Well, yeah, I would, I think I would uh, stay the course actually. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so along that same line, um, this next question is about TAF and osteopenia versus uh, TDF. Uh, we're going to get to that a little bit in the cases, so maybe we'll postpone that one yeah. uh, for the next. Um, what helps best with weight loss than someone who is on TAF and a, a integrase inhibitor? What What would you do? Uh, is, is it weight loss, I guess? Um, I guess maybe they're thinking weight gain. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's somebody who wants to lose weight. and uh, uh, Right, and I think we. this is where we're at. I mean, all the data that's been presented is inconclusive. We all sort of hope that studies would show that when you stop TAF and potentially de stop the integrase inhibitor, that there would be a clear weight loss effect. And at least with the few studies that are randomized prospective studies so far, that hasn't been the case. So um, at this point, we don't have an answer what you should do. Right. And I've said this before, ever since I've been writing for antiretrovirals over the last decade, I tend to be gaining weight, and I don't think that. <laughs> not sure why. Um, so, um, does TAF and Depo have the same bone issues? I'm wondering about maybe mechanism there. What do you think? Um, I think that the mechanisms are are different um, because the the Depo is through its activity on estrogen levels. Um, so that's a completely different mechanism of the bone toxicity of, of TAF. So I would expect them to be additives, sort of what the study showed. And then there's a couple of uh, questions here about dilutegravir and pregnancy. We're going to get to that in the cases, so I'll postpone there. Could you describe any information regarding bictegravir and weight gain? Had there been studies looking at head integrase inhibitors head-to-head? Um there's not been good studies in prospective head-to-head -head that have been presented yet. And most of the large cohort studies don't have years of follow-up on Bictegravir. Um, so 
there's not conclusive data at this point, but it's, it's not expected that it would be uniquely uh, have the property of not leading to weight gain. Okay. And then uh, what about using Fosfomax? So this question is, would you put everybody on it, but is there a particular population you might think about uh, for? Well, I think if you were going to use a bisphosphonate or a similar agent that you would use it in treatment naive people prior to starting antiretroviral therapy, um, there was some data from Australia that showing that people that are already on antiretroviral therapy might benefit. Um, but a lot of the bone resorption occurs very on in the course of antiretroviral therapy. And there was a randomized study uh, that uh, Ego Fudikin did that showed that people who got preemptive therapy with a bisphosphonate maintained their bone density versus those that didn't. So I think obviously we need to have larger cohorts or larger studies of that strategy. Right. And then this is the last question. Uh, thoughts on weight gain with TAF over time. Does it, can, does it compound or does it kind of plateau off? Do you have it, a... it, in the cohorts and studies that have been done so far, it tends to plateau. Okay. But obviously plateauing with a BMI of 38 is probably not, you know, what people prefer. <laughs>